Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Okay, over the past couple months we've been studying um, Paul's second epistle to the church of Corinth. And um, we have moved into this final section of his, his writing of his epistle to the church in which in dealing with afflictions and embracing afflictions, he is talking about spiritual afflictions um, that have come upon him um, specifically, but then to the church as a whole. And so um, a couple weeks ago, we moved into this part in chapter 10, and we spent quite a while looking at it. First, dealing with the, the concept of the weapons of our warfare um, that God has given to us to, to combat within the midst of this, this, the spiritual afflictions that are going to go on. And I made a comment, and that you can see on the screen as well, that when you begin to share the truth of God's word and to seek to live according to its standard, you will find opposition. Satan will fight against anyone who is... Um, seeking to serve the Lord. And so if you are seeking to be bold, if you are seeking to serve God in any manner, you can expect that there's going to be opposition. So as you desire to have your your family, this is Mother's Day, right? So as you desire to have your family to be built upon the foundation of the Word of God and upon Christ himself and to give God glory, you can expect that within your home there is going to be some opposition, that Satan is going to seek to to try to fight against that. Well, in life as a whole, it's the same way. And so as we began looking at this, we saw that um, Satan's two tactics first are to fight against the message of God, which is truth, in order to go against the glory of God, because ultimately everything is about the glory of God. And Satan doesn't want God to get the glory. And so God's glory comes predominantly through the, the giving of the truth and people coming to know the truth and the truth setting them free, and then they glorify God. So Satan attacks the truth, but then secondly, the attack of the messenger himself, because if, if Satan can destroy the messenger, then he can destroy the message, not necessarily destroying the message, but stop the message from getting through. And so we moved last week into the, the, the transition of looking at then the attack on the messenger himself. And Paul talks about this um, a lot when he is discussing the, um, the, in the end here, about how there were uh, Judaizers who had been following him around and seeking to teach a false gospel, a false Jesus, giving a false spirit to the people. And so we discussed that um, each, each time, actually. It's almost come up in, in chapter 11 talking about that. And again, today, it's, we're going to transition through that. But that, that these individuals, not only when they were given the false gospel and such, but they, they attacked his ministry in um, the, making him seem to be the false apostle. And so it has forced him then to come back and to defend the ministry, to defend his ministry. And so last week, we saw him defending his calling. And um, as we come through this, Paul is talking a lot about boasting and um and he and he hates it he hates the fact that he's got to boast about himself because he he says ultimately if you're going to boast if you're going to glory in anything 
you need to be glorying in Yahweh. You glory in the Lord that that all things are of, of Christ, all things are of God. And so those he's the one that you want to glory in. And yet there is the reality that um, there needs to be a time when you might have to defend your ministry. And so what do we do? Well, how do we do that in this balance between giving God the glory and yet defending what God is doing through us? And so last week we looked at um, beginning in chapter 10, coming down through into chapter 11, uh, Paul discussing um, the standard of our ministry, and that is Christ himself. And so he looked at the humility of Christ and then the headship of Christ. And so if, um, if someone is true in their ministry, and we'll continue on through with this as we keep going this week and next week, but if someone is true in their ministry, then the reality is that it's going to point back to, to Christ himself. And so that Christ will be the head of that ministry. Secondly, in the sphere of our ministry, it's going to be those with whom that God has given us the opportunity to serve. And so to believers, he gives us the opportunities to edify, um, to, to build up individuals, the, the believers in Christ, but then also to bringing in evangelism to those who don't know Christ. And so that we then have the ones that where God has placed us, where he has planted us for us to be able to serve in that area and to minister to those people who are around us. And then finally, we looked at the summation of our ministry, um, which is summed up in actually two points, and that is your relationship to God and then your, your representation of God. And so the big deal is that it's not whom, who commends himself, but rather who God commends. And so we saw how Jesus said in Matthew 7, there are going to be some who come to him in that day, and they're, they're going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not accomplish all these wonderful works in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me, you son of lawlessness. I didn't know you. We can proclaim that we know him all we want. The, the reality is the, the actual decision-making, though, is on his part. Does he know us? And so the challenge to us, then, is, is to ask ourselves that question. Are we playing the game? Do we have just intellectual head knowledge? Or do we really, really know him in our hearts? Do you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus? If you do, Romans 10 tells us that if you believe in Christ in your heart, it will naturally come out of your mouth. He will be what you want to talk about. He will be what you want to glorify. If you're seeking to glorify yourself, if you're seeking to draw attention to yourself, then real reality is then you are your own God from that perspective, that it's all about you. And so it may be a matter of that you need to become humbled in that. That's between you and God. I challenge you to, to, to ask Christ about that, ask God about that, to reveal the dross that's within you that needs to be cleansed away, but, or to ask, do I really know him or do I not? Today, we want to move on to Paul's second point. Um, maybe. Oh, here we go. Um, and that's going to be regarding his credentials. And what we're going to see here, and this is a long portion that Chuck just read, um, and we're going to try to come through this quickly, is that there are going to be three areas in which um, his ministry is going to be then attested to by giving credentials. And the first one is his devotion to the people. And so what we saw um, all the way in chapter 10, verse 17, that again, it's not a matter of you commending yourself, but rather who the Lord commends. And so the Lord gave um, his 
um, uh, standards of ministry back in Matthew chapter 10 when he sent forth uh, the disciples. And he said to them, Matthew 10, beginning of verse 7, he said, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there until you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And so Jesus said, when you, when you go out, you don't charge for the gospel. Freely you are received, freely give. If people want to contribute to your ministry, then they can do that. But as far as the message that I've given to you, you don't charge for it. Rather, you've been given it freely, you give it freely. The talents that you've received, they're not from you. And so you give them and you offer them freely. I'm saddened in, in our land today when it seems like everything that is of ministry costs. Now, I understand that there's a need to cover our costs in certain things. But when I hear, and I've heard this for, for many, many years, and it, it drives me bonkers, you know, that this is the most important message that you, you could ever receive. And for 1995, we'll send it to you. That's not freely receive, freely give. That if God has given me opportunities to, to minister to others, he'll provide my needs. And he has, in a miraculous way, for me and my family over the years. Um, and so I, I just want to encourage you that as you have opportunities to serve him, please, please, please don't do it with a, a string that um, you need any money in return for it. God will provide for whatever he wants you to do. If it's his ministry, he'll provide for it. Well, Paul then continues on. Start, he talks about this in, in, in Matthew, um, or Matthew, I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians 11, where he says, beginning of verse 7, he says, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you in a need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. As the truth is in Christ, no one shall stop me from this boasting. Paul says, look, when I was with you, I didn't charge you anything for this message. Rather, other churches gave me their resource from their resources in order for me to survive. And when I didn't have enough, I went out and I worked. I labored with my hands in order that I might be able to be no burden upon you in giving you the gospel, that there was no, no hidden motivations for this. He talks about that as well in First Thessalonians chapter 2. And so if you've got your Bibles there, turn with me to First Thessalonians 2. First Thessalonians 2. 
um, where Paul talks to the Thessalonians about the same concept, beginning at verse 1. Paul wrote, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even when we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our, for our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our heart. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor do we seek to glo seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now we are gentle among you, <clears throat> just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor in toil, for laboring night and day, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we have behaved ourselves among you who believe. And you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul, even then when he was in Thessalonica, um, sought not to charge for the gospel, but rather he labored with his own hands, he says, night and day, in order that he might not be a burden upon them. And again, in Philippians chapter 4, we read the same thing, um, that how Paul, while he was there, um, that the Philippians then, these are, this is the church of Macedonia, how they decided that they wanted to start assisting him in his, his work elsewhere. And so in Philippians 4, beginning at verse 14, we read, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that at the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even the Thessalonica, you sent once again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all in abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things that were sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul revealed by his actions, his devotion to the, to the, to the people there um, in Corinth and to the, specifically these who are becoming believers, that when he went to Corinth, again, they weren't believers yet. He was giving them the gospel. He showed his love for them as just people, as those who were made in the image and likeness of God, that he wasn't going to ask them to give him anything them the gospel. Rather, he was going to labor with his hand. He was going to receive the gifts that were given by the church, Philadelphia, church of Philippi and for the other churches, the churches of Macedonia, that he would then be able to give freely the gospel that Jesus Christ 
had given to him that he might be able to give it to others. And then even then, after people were starting to get saved, he still didn't charge them. Rather, he allowed it to be their, their desire, a free will offering that they would want to um, become part of the, the ministry that he, that he had. Secondly, Secondly, Paul then contrasts this um, with his adversaries. This is an interesting study by itself. Now, we looked at this first part, their alignment, um, over the past couple of weeks, and that is th these false apostles that we read about um, coming with another gospel, another Jesus, another spirit. Their alignment is with Satan. They, they, are, they are false workers. Um, I've got on the sermon note sheets, 2 Peter 2, 12 to 15, Jude 10 to, 10 to 13. You can read those as well. But the fact is that these false workers were workers of the devil. And um, Satan, they're ministers of righteousness who shall be according to their works. But Paul then goes on to talk about um, these individuals and how they act when they were among the Corinthians. And Paul says to him, he says, look, he says, this is an amazing thing to me. He says, because you put up with them. Um, drop down into verse 16, where he says, I say again, let no one think me as a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolish in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage. And so one of the first things we see, we're going to see five things here that he's going to describe that these false workers do. And the first one is they seek to bring people into, into bondage. They seek to enslave believers. And we see this in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, where Paul says, um, he says, then after 14 years, and we'll talk about this 14 years again in, in a little bit when we get into his revelations. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated with them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield, submit even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So Paul says, look, he says, when I came and I was preaching among you, then again, these false workers came in. They came in to spy among us, but ultimately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, that they might bring us into bondage. And that's what um, Peter then says in 2 Peter 2, regarding these, these false apostles and workers again, when he says in 2 Peter 2, verses 18 and 19, he says, when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those things, from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, 
they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, him also he is brought into bondage. And so, Romans 6, Paul says to Jesus, do you not know, do you not understand that who you offer yourselves as a slave to obey, you are the one slave to whom you obey, whether of sin leading unto death or of obedience leading unto righteousness? <clears throat> that we choose <clears throat> who we want to become enslaved to. We choose whom we want to serve. And so, in Christ, we have been given this liberty to serve God to serve Christ. And in that liberty and serving Christ, then we choose to serve one another. But these false apostles, these false workers, these false teachers who are even around today, their desire is to bring the body into bondage, not to Christ, not in serving others but in serving them. They come up with a listing of commands by which men must do in order to attain some form of righteousness. I noted this, saw this years ago when I was pastoring in, in, in the independent Baptist realm. Now, I'm not picking on independent Baptists because there are a lot of good independent Baptists, but there is a sect, there is a grouping within um, in which they come up with a listing of um, women needing to wear skirts and uh, the, the length of the skirts, the, the, the length of the hair. And, and though a lot of things may be true and may be wisdom, they are not according to the scriptures. And, and when you begin to put um, things of man on top of what Christ has done for us, you seek then to minimize the, the gospel of grace. What must we do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall be saved. It, it's not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, X, Y, and Z. That's legalism. And that's what these um, Judaizers were seeking to do with these early Jews. For them, they were telling the people that they needed to be circumcised, that the men needed to be circumcised, and that they needed to live according to the laws of Moses. Well, Paul and, and Barnabas had gone from Antioch to the church of of Jerusalem to, to have a, a large council, that's Acts chapter 15, in order to handle that very issue. And everyone studying the scriptures and, and seeking God's face, the, the leaders of the church realized at that moment that was not according to the gospel of grace. And so that they didn't have to do those things in order to be saved or in order to live a righteous life. And so first thing is that these individuals, they seek to enslave Believers. The second thing we see then as well is that um, if one devours you, he says, they seek to devour believers. Matthew 23, verse 14 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. Amazing to me how many of these charlatans of today all want you to send in your gifts to them. God will bless you if you give me your gifts. This health and wealth thing is based upon that they get your, your wealth. You give your wealth, they get the wealth. That's why they're wealthy. And I'm not saying that a preacher shouldn't um, have money, um, but 
we've got to be careful um, when a pastor or a, a church leader has an inordinate desire for, for money um, that goes against the, the qualifications in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so, um, again, I'm not saying that he needs to be poor, you know, the old thing about, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. But the reality is that one of the, the, the things that you can see when you look at somebody's ministry, if they're focused a whole lot about people giving money, then there's something wrong with that ministry. Um, they ought to be seeking to give glory to God and not having people give to themselves. Thirdly, they seek to divide um, the believers. It says, if it takes from you, and takes from you. In other words, they're taking members from you. They're drawing people away from you. They're bringing schisms within the assembly so that they can draw people after themselves. And so you can read Romans 16 and, and 2 Timothy 3, um, 2 Timothy 3 talking about the end times and how the, 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 there will be false teachers in that day that will do this very thing. They will draw away people after themselves. And so again, if someone raises up within the assembly and they're seeking people, seeking to divide the assembly and getting people to follow after them, they're probably not a true follower of Christ and they're probably not a true teacher as well. The fourth thing is they seek to exalt themselves. And so he says, you know, if one takes you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes you from you, if one exalts him again, this goes back to what we started with, with Paul saying, you know, about the ultimate thing is that if anyone glories, let him glory in this, that they understand and know Yahweh, that the ultimate glory is to Yahweh himself. And so when someone comes and they're seeking to draw attention to themselves, then they're not of God. So if they're seeking to enslave believers, devour believers, divide believers, exalt themselves, or finally to intimidate believers, he says, and if someone would come and they, they strike you on the face, they, give you, they slap you on the face. Now, he says, you put up with it. And so this is someone, again, who is intimidating. This goes back then to what we talked about, um, that some of the, the, um, the devices of Satan and of, of these false workers that we talked about earlier um, a couple of weeks ago, and this intimidation factor, this fear factor, that they, they, want, they, they want to intimidate believers. And so they, they wind up using harsh words, and they wind up um, berating people in order that they might be able to raise themselves up and keep them in line. And so that's one of the ways that they can and keep people following after them is they, 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 they use the harsh words and do threatening words to them. And so, again, when you're out there and you're looking at churches and you're um, listening to people who are teaching, if they are seeking to add anything to the gospel message, anything to the gospel message, that's an, that's a, that, that ought to be a flag. If they are seeking money, if they're seeking to, to have people give them things, that's cultic, that should be a flag. If they're seeking to, to draw people after themselves away from their own flocks and away from um, Christ, that's a flag. If they're seeking to exalt themselves and to lift themselves and, and, and have people looking at them, at them rather than Christ, it's a flag. Finally, again, if they're seeking to use harsh terms and berate people. I remember um, um, years ago, I went to see a man named Peter um, in, yeah, I'm naming a name there. He was a false teacher. Um, in, 
sadly, there were a lot of people in the quote-unquote conservative Christian realm that followed this guy. Um, it was King James onlyism. His his one of his favorite comments was, "If the King James was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me." And we may chuckle about that, but there are a lot of people who followed him. And this guy, and I, I went along with another pastor to a local church. Here he came locally, um, and to see if this guy was real. In in this, it was a large church, and and it was packed, packed um, to see this guy. And as he preached, he made this chalk art, beautiful, beautiful art of Jesus hanging on the cross. But as he taught, he was so caustic. I mean, battery acid coming out. I mean, just uh, spewing hate um, re regarding particular sins. Again, um, you know, we, we hate sin but we love the sinner. And at one point, um, there were some people who got up and they walked out. He turned on them in the middle of the message and started calling them names in the middle to intimidate them, intimidate everybody else because nobody else is going to walk out now because they don't want to be called names for walking out. That's not a minister of righteousness. That's not a minister of Christ. We've got to be careful um, of who, who we follow after. And it was very sad for me. I remember praying for these people who were there out of devotion to this guy. And I'm thinking, it's sad. He's drawing this beautiful chalk art. And then he gave it away at the end. He gave away his, 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 his chalk art drawing. Um, and um, it was beautiful. Sadly, his message wasn't. Everything he was teaching was, was caustic and, and totally contrary to the grace of God. Secondly, Paul then is attested to by his afflictions, not just his devotion to the people, especially in contrast to, to those who are um, seeking to, to, if you would, rape the people, um, but by his afflictions. Way back in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we saw this passage, and I'm not going to spend time on it, but just to bring it up here, and you can see, again, as a reminder that he's already talked about these tribulations that he's gone through, and he's going to talk about them again here in chapter 11, that that Chuck just read about. And so in chapter six, we read, excuse me, about the tribulations, distresses, the stripes, the imprisonments, the tumults, the labors, sleeplessness, fastings, and so on and so forth. And then here in chapter 11, here in chapter 11, he says, beginning in, in verse 24, he says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Now that was a, a Jewish custom that they couldn't give somebody 40 stripes. And so they were given 39. You couldn't do the 40 stripes. Um, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I had been in the deep. Again, that's part of the, the shipwreck. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, and fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And so he goes through this list. I'm reading from chapter 11, but you can see a lot of those same things there from chapter 6 as well, that Paul, again, goes through these things. But he sums it all up in verse 29 and 30. He says, Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things 
which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. I want to boast in the things of which I am weak. And as we're going to see, because when I am weak, he is made strong. And that goes thirdly then into this attestation, if you would, of his revelations. And there's a lot in this um, section, in these 12 verses, that we're not going to be able to get into in great detail. But I know that people want to know, what is he talking about in here? You know, because this is really the, one of the big things. I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot, I cannot say. So Paul talks about this revelation um, that he received. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to keep this in context. And so we're going to read some other passages here first, and then we're going to come back into 2 Corinthians 12. So let's start in Galatians 1. Galatians 1, and we're going to, um, beginning in verse 11 in Galatians 1, Paul says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the brother. Now, concerning the things which I write to you, deed before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. Turn now to Acts 9. This is um, the timing of Paul's salvation when he was on the road to Damascus. And he gets saved. He goes, um, the, the blindness is taken away from him, okay? And that's where we want to pick this up in verse 10. It says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias... And Ananias said, here I, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority 
from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is the chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And so when he received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples of Damascus. And so we're told then, immediately afterwards, he begins to preach the gospel in the synagogues. The people there turn against him, and he is let down by a, um, a basket. Um, according to, we're, we're back down to verse 23, so we're told after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So we're told by Paul in Galatians that um, after he was saved, he went into Arabia and spent a period of time there, potentially three years, according to what he said, where he was being taught by Jesus himself. And then he goes back and he begins to teach. There's a lot of debate on where in here potentially that then began. Turn to chapter 18, Acts 18. verse 9, where we read, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And so Jesus came to Paul while he was there at Corinth. This is in context of, of Paul being at Corinth. So while he's at Corinth, um, God comes in and encourages him. And so Jesus does this numerous times. And you can see then, again, in Acts 22 and Acts 26, that Jesus had come to Paul and revealed himself to him. So there's this great debate many times upon when did this happen? And so potentially that would happen after his conversion in Damascus, and then he returns uh, there. And so in Corinthians, back in 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul then writes, he says, it's doubtful, not pro- it's, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, and so trying to, to figure out when he wrote this and going back 14 years, um, determine that that hasn't that's not necessarily decisive either. Um, but he says very specifically what happened, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know. Such a man, such a one was cut up. The word is harpazo. That's the same word that talks about us, what's going to happen to us when we're caught up in the clouds when Jesus returns. He was caught up to the third heaven. The third heaven, you have the, the sky where there are the clouds. The second heaven is what we look at is with the stars in the, in the universe. The third heaven is the place of God's dwelling. So he was talking about being actually taken into the presence of God, that such a one was caught up into the third heaven. 
I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees or hears from me. So the event is very clear, that Paul at least attests to the fact that he was caught up and that he had a vision. Whether he was physically there or not there, he doesn't know. So it could be um, while he was in Arabia, he had this, or maybe while he was in Damascus, he was caught up and taken into Arabia. So think about Ezekiel. While Ezekiel is in Babylon, and he is by the river Chibar, he is in his house, and remember he was bound up for those who were there in Sunday school with us, right? He's bound up, and some leaders, the elders of the, 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 the city, the Jews, came to see him. And while they were with him, he has this vision, and he says he was taken up in his body, and he was taken to Jerusalem. And while he was in Jerusalem, then he was told to, to, to dig into the, to, the, to the wall. And so he doesn't know, Ezekiel doesn't know whether he was literally taken there in his body or whether he was taken there in his spirit, but he knows he's in his body when he's there in the vision. And so Paul, in the same way, is talking about this, this concept, whether he's in a body, he doesn't know, whether he's in the spirit, he didn't know. And so we're not positive how this played out, but it probably played out soon after he was he was saved, okay? And so the event then the, is, was something that, was, that set him apart from all these other people. And he says, look, he says, you know, lest I refrain, he says, he says you know, I want to boast about this, he says, but boy, I, I, I can't do that because I want to speak the truth, verse 6, but I refrain lest anyone should think me above what he sees me or hears from me. And then he goes on then in verse 7, talks about this equalizer that God places within him then. He says, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might be departed from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures, pleasure in my infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says that he was given this thorn, and you can turn to Numbers 33 later where the same illustration is used. Paul says that he was given this thorn in his flesh, and he refers to it as a messenger of Satan. He doesn't tell us specifically what the thorn is. There have been many people who debate what this is, um, whether because he about his eye and that he, he had his, his, his sight was becoming really wrong. His, or not really wrong, uh, really bad. And so um, I don't know necessarily whether that was it or not. Um, Paul writes an awful lot about the lust of the flesh. Was that it? I, I don't know. Um, all I know is that Paul says that there was given to him, and he knows that it was given by God, that God allowed this in 
life. It's the messenger of Satan. So just like Job, God allowed Satan to, to test Job. And Job understood that ultimately, though, that these things, these afflictions that he was going through, ultimately God had allowed him. God allowed him through his sieve, and he worshiped God, even by stating that. He said, Lord, giveth, Lord, taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all these things were told Job did not sin. And so, so Paul, in the same manner, realizes that God has allowed this buffeting to him, this constant attack within him. So maybe it's these Judaizers, that this constant attack that's going to be upon him in order to keep him humble, that he is not exalted beyond measure and that people don't exalt him. That's why in his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, look, you know, there shouldn't be these schisms. It's, it's, I'm nothing. Peter's nothing. Apollos is nothing. Rather, it's is everything. So Paul then, we're told, when this messenger of Satan came upon him, he says he prayed. He prayed three times, just like Jesus. When Jesus was in the garden, Jesus prayed three times. Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Paul prayed the same thing. He asked for this to be taken away from him, but three times Jesus told him, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul says, look, I realized when I am weak that I am actually strong because I'm no longer relying upon my own prowess. I'm no longer relying upon my own wisdom and my own abilities, but now I'm relying upon the abilities and the power of God. And that's when I become strong. That's when I am I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is God who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ever ask or think, not we ourselves. So in the end, would your history be more reflective of Paul's or of his adversaries? Is it more other-focused? Or is it more self-focused? Is it more looking to yourself? Secondly, will you serve only for personal gain? The Lord taught me this and, and, and challenged me with this many, many years ago. I, I had the opportunity to minister to an assistant pastor of a local church who at one time years ago had been in my, my youth group. And he was struggling um, with whether he needed to leave that church or not. And um, we met at a, a Waffle House, and I said, I have two questions for you. And he says, okay. And I said, my first question is, whose church is that? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, whose church is it? Who, who decides what's going to happen there? Does the pastor speak and it happens? Does the congregation have a vote? Do you all pray about what God would desire? Do you, do you seek as a, as, a, as a leadership team for, for Christ's leading and guiding, you know, that he would be the head of the assembly and that you will follow what he would have you to do. And he says, oh, it's the pastor's church. I said, well, that's something by itself, isn't it? I said, if it's not Christ's church, if it's his church, then that tells you something right off the bat. I said, my second question for you, though, is, are you a pastor or a hireling? Are you a shepherd or a hireling? And he says, what do you mean by that? I said, well, are you doing what you're doing because you're getting paid? 
Or are you doing what you're doing because of God's calling in your life? Would you continue to do what you're doing if they didn't pay you to do it? Would you serve if you weren't being paid to do it? His response was, ouch. Because at that moment, he realized that, in fact, he was only seeing ministry as a job, as a profession. And I told him, I said, well, that's, then it's pretty clear you need to, you're, you're a hard gunslinger, and so you just need to leave and need to find somebody else who's going to hire you to, to do what you do. And that sounds awful, but I, I don't have anything, any problems with hirelings. I mean, there are many people out there who, who, who are in a profession, and that's fine. But you need to ask yourself, do you not serve Christ because there's nothing in it for you? Or will you do things for Christ when you get something out of it? Serving Christ ought to be freely I received, freely give. I want to give because what he has given to me. How do you view the afflictions that God has allowed into your life? Do you view them as opportunities to substantiate his working in your life? That look at what God is doing through me, look at what he enables me to come through, that it's all about him? Or are these moanings and, and groanings and times when that uh, um, you whine and complain? Is God a good God, a faithful God, or not? Is there ultimately then a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness to us. We know that you are a good God. You are a faithful God. You are a true God. And Lord, that it is all about you, not about us. But too many times, Lord, we allow our flesh to get in the way. We begin to focus on ourselves. Forgive us for that, Lord. Our heart's desire is to magnify you, to serve you, to, to seek your kingdom and your righteousness, to introduce other people to you. Lord, protect us from ourselves. Protect us from our own uh, self-desires, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Lord, help us to seek to magnify you. And Lord, protect us from the evil one. Protect us from those who, who pretend to be uh, true workers of righteousness, but truly are false workers of righteousness, who are only seeking to bring glory to themselves. Lord, help us to learn a lesson from that as well, and help us to, to, to want to be led by your Spirit, Lord, in the dross that's within us. Lord, that you would reveal it to us, and that we taken away, that we wouldn't be about us, it would be all about you.